ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. Now we're trying something a little different this episode. Usually we bring you our stories in seasons, in batches, a couple times a year. But here we're rolling out a brand new doc all on its own because we think this is the moment to listen to it. In the summer of 1999, women's soccer was everywhere. That's when Mia Hamm, Brandi Chastain, Julie Foudy, and the stars of the 99 World Cup team brought women's soccer to the mainstream for the first time. It's a story a lot of us remember and a story we'll be hearing a lot about this summer, but there is a deeper history. Behind the scenes, these women had been fighting to grow the game for decades, and I will note that that fight is not over. It continues to this very moment. But the wild success of 99 gave the U.S. women a launch pad to build the world's first fully professional women's soccer league. And that's what this story is all about. It's brought to us by producers Andrew Helms and Meredith Hodenut. Here's Meredith bringing us the story of Backpass. Julie? What's up, Coach? So nice to have you with that damn video camera <laughs> every time somebody walks out. Julie Foudy was always recording on her camcorder, and she was rolling as the national team bus headed to the opening game of the 1999 Women's World Cup. Hi, Julie! Hello! Julie was co-captain, a star midfielder, and the team's unofficial cinematographer. Brady, turn around. Three of you, give me a few words about this World Cup. One game at a time, baby! Spirits were high that day as the team went to Giant Stadium in New Jersey. Julie wasn't worried about the game. The team had been training for months, but she was worried about empty seats. Like, oh shit, I hope people come. Am I allowed to cuss? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Oh, I am. Okay. <laughs> you know, shit, what if people don't come? The country barely noticed when they won the first ever Women's World Cup in 91. That day on the bus, they wondered if anyone would pay attention this time. Holy cow. And then they hit traffic. Julie and goalkeeper Brianna Scurry watched as the Jersey Turnpike turned into a parking lot. And we're like, oh my God, what is this? This is crazy. We're not going to get to our game. I remember thinking, we're going to be late. Late to our own wedding, basically, <laughs> which is not good. <laughs> and then we realized, like, it's all cars with, like, you know, we love Mia, go USA. It, they were all coming to our game. And we're pointing at these girls, and they're pointing at us, and we're waving at them, and they're waving at us. We were like little schoolgirls in the bus. How cute is she? I know, she's darling. Aaron Heifetz, our press officer, standing on the bus as we're driving to the first game. And she says, you know, I want to announce, you know, today's game. This is sellout. It will be a sellout. Yeah! And we had no idea. We were like, what? With the whole bus goes crazy. That's when I think we realized, huh, all right, we might be onto something here. Like, this is, 
This is bigger than even we dreamt it could be. World Cup fever has hit the United States. The U.S. crushed the competition. They racked up win after win and sailed past Brazil into the final. That's it! The USA is going to the final of the World Cup! The team's run captivated the country. This event is, is a lightning rod for not just soccer, but for women's sports. Finally, women's sports could fill the biggest stadiums in the country. We've never seen anything like this in the history of the planet. Welcome, everyone, to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, for the much-anticipated final between China and the United States. The Rose Bowl was packed. It was crazy. Everybody was hooked on these women winning a World Cup. Shannon Box cheered from the stands with her face painted red, white, and blue. Oh, it was blazing. It was so hot. And on the field, I remember them saying it was like over 100 degrees. Shannon had graduated from Notre Dame a few months earlier. She was a top college soccer player and had dreamed of playing for the United States. But she was always just below the national team level. After college, there was nowhere for her to play. No women's professional league and no way to make it to the national team. Man, I really wish that like could have been something for me. I really wish I could have made it to that level. Ninety thousand fans filled the Rose Bowl, and millions more tuned in from home. The final match against China was the most watched soccer game in American history at that time. The nation held its breath. First half. Michelle Akers guns it long, but it's right at Gao Hong. No goals. Second half. She can't break through the U.S. defense. No goals. Overtime. Send up the line. Rebound was clear. Still no goals. Referee has just looked at the watch. That's it. The winner of the 1999 Women's World Cup will be decided on penalty kicks. It all came down to just one kick. Chastain will take it. Brandy Chastain approached the penalty spot, put down the ball, and stepped back. Team captain Carla Overbeck was standing behind her at midfield. I'm a little superstitious, and I couldn't watch. I'm looking down because I knew if she missed, I would hear the crowd go, oh. (laughs) And I knew if she made it, I would just hear craziness. And so I wasn't watching, and then all of a sudden, the entire stadium just erupted. The United States has won the Women's World Cup. Brandy rips off her jersey and falls to her knees. Without a doubt, this is the lasting image of the World Cup. Brandy Chastain on her knees, waving her jersey instead of wearing it. Brandy and the national team were everywhere. Get ready for the girls of summer. The nationwide victory party continues today. Magazines, commercials, morning shows, the White House. We want to welcome this remarkable team. Their triumph has surely become America's triumph. By creating the largest women's sporting event in history, they have exploded the myth once and for all that women's sports can't attract fans, and it is about time that that has happened. They were stars, and their popularity kept rising. Julie and the rest of the team realized that this was the moment to chase their dream and build the world's first Women's Professional Soccer League. I just remember thinking, like, is this a reality? Like, we're, we're actually going to pull this off. 
a pro league would build on the energy of 99 and grow the game for future generations. To start a league, they needed approval from the U.S. Soccer Federation, the governing body of the sport in America. But there was a problem. We had no trust with our federation. I mean, it was the, the relationship was, was torn. It was bad. The national team had been fighting with U.S. soccer for years. The 20 women on the U.S. soccer team are paid between $15,000 and $35,000 a year, more of a stipend. We didn't want to make millions. Co-captain Carla Overbeck. We just wanted to be able to survive and not have to get outside employment to play the game we loved. We've been on this team 10, 12 years, and yet our salaries are squat, you know? It doesn't seem fair. The fights had escalated after Julie met tennis legend Billie Jean King, an icon, a leader in the fight for gender equality in sports. Julie told Billie Jean about the team's struggles with the Federation. I say to her, we've been going through this for years now and we're tired. What do we do? And she looked at me and said, well, what are you doing? I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> she said, what are you doing, Fowdy? You as players, what are you doing? And as Billie Jean you know, does, she goes into this kind of roar like, you have the leverage. You change it. By the time of the 99 World Cup, the players had gotten more organized and hired a lawyer. The fights were brutal, and the women's success in 99 only amplified the tension, just when they needed the Federation's support to start a new league. There was not a player on that national team that felt like the Federation wanted a women's league. The women believed the Federation saw their success as a threat to the new men's league, Major League Soccer. U.S. soccer had invested millions to help MLS get off the ground. We felt that they thought it was competition. It was like, that market's crowded. We're already struggling in it. Get the hell out. U.S. soccer asked MLS to submit a plan for a women's league. That scared Julie and the national team, who felt like a women's league under MLS would be an afterthought, a sideshow to the men's main event. We felt that any effort by them was simply an effort to impede. The women wanted a league independent from MLS. And for the first time, they had another option. That team represented something that was very special on the American stage. John Hendricks and his family loved the national team. The heart that they played with, they never, ever gave up. And so for those of us who have daughters, we want them to experience that. And so that was a very powerful motivation. John Hendricks wasn't just any fan. He was the multimillionaire founder and CEO of the Discovery Channel. John had heard about the women's idea for a pro league, and he saw a business opportunity. It was a chance to do something good and try to build a business as well. And so I started calling my friends. One by one, John reached out to his buddies at Comcast, Time Warner, and Cox Enterprises. They were the giants of the cable industry, executives who called themselves the Cable Cowboys. One of his first calls was to Jim Kennedy, the chairman and CEO at Cox. John said, hey, I have this idea. I think the time has come for us to have a women's league here in America. He pitched them on his vision of the WUSA, the Women's United Soccer Association, a league with eight teams in eight cities across the country. WUSA would be a business built on the stars of 99, 
they were the key to reaching a growing demographic of soccer moms and their minivans. Anything you can like Mia Hamm, selling girl power and Gatorade alongside Michael Jordan. Had enough? <laughs> Let's go. It wasn't unreasonable to think these women could really be the face of soccer in America, not just women's soccer. John asked the cable companies to put in $5 million per team, startup capital to launch the league and keep it going for five years. Altogether, they put in $40 million to capture the magic of the 99 World Cup. They were pre-sold. Everybody was in love with the U.S. women's national team. It was fairly easy. They all said, John, if you're in it, I'm in it, and let's give it a shot. Julie Foudy was thrilled when she heard that a bunch of millionaire cable executives wanted to fund a women's league. We almost saw it as a way out from underneath U.S. soccer. We were like, freedom! Let's get out of this place! We've got someone else, finally! Carla Overbeck felt the difference between U.S. soccer and John Hendricks. It was just refreshing because so many other meetings with the Federation, it was a fight. And here, this man of this magnitude had an appreciation for what we did and what we could possibly do starting a league. For the first time in their careers, soccer could be a full-time job for these world champions. Some of the players on the national team were just scraping by on $15,000 a year. Now, WUSA was offering these same players an $80,000 salary and a five-year guaranteed contract. You know, we were basically like, where do you want us to sign? What do you need us to do? We're in. The national team and cable company investors worked together to get approval from U.S. soccer. After months of delays, the Federation signed off, and Julie Foudy announced the start of their new league at a launch event in November 2000. What an awesome day. What an awesome day. We have dreamt and talked about it. You know, how cool would it be to not only start a league in this country, but to have the best league in the entire world. And we are doing just that. To spread the magic of 99, the 20 World Cup stars joined teams across the league. Mia Hamm signed with the Washington Freedom, Brandi Chastain with the Bay Area Cyber Ace, and Julie Foudy went to her hometown team, the San Diego Spirit. That left a lot of open spots on teams around the country. And Shannon Box wanted in. I was like, well, I want to be part of this. The national team is for the rare few, but I can play in a professional league and be a professional soccer player. Most women couldn't say that they were a professional athlete at that point. Shannon had thought her playing days were over. She was 23 and lived at home with her mom. She was considering grad school and worked at California Pizza Kitchen to make ends meet. Barbecue chicken chopped salad. Yum. (laughs) And it was free lunch. (laughs) This new league was her chance to get back on the field. And she was not going to let that opportunity pass her by. And I actually reached out to Tony DeChico and said, I'm interested. Hey, don't forget about me. Tony DeChico had been the head coach for the U.S. women's national team during the 99 World Cup. And he was in charge of recruiting players for the new league. He wrote back to Shannon right away and invited her to try out at the Combine. I remember walking off the plane and being like, here I go, this is my opportunity. And, but I was, su- I was really nervous. In December 2000, over 170 women traveled to Southern Florida to fight for a spot on a WUSA roster. 
it was a who's who of international and collegiate soccer talent. It was really, it was like a giant reunion too. And at the same time, I remember like seeing players and being like, ugh, they play for UNC or ugh, she played for Notre Dame. Jackie Little had just graduated from Santa Clara University, a powerhouse program. She had five days to impress the coaches and the competition was fierce. There was a gnarly injury during one of my games where a girl literally broke her ankle and it popped out. It's not like college and it's you're fighting to get drafted into the first ever women's league. I mean, it was it was intense for sure. Tom Meredith was a few fields away. He was the VP of operations for WUSA, the logistics guy. Every every company, every team has to have somebody that wants to have the trains run on time, and I like I like to be the guy that does that. Tom planned every detail, from booking travel to buying soccer balls, and he knew what his part of the combine had cost. But there were a lot of last-minute expenses from the league office, like camera crews that needed power. And I'm like, did you get the generator? Did you have power that you need that's 400 feet away? Okay, you need a generator. Well, there's only one in town and I got it, but it's costing me twice what it should have. John Hendricks came down to the combine. Tom picked him up in a golf cart and drove him around the fields. And he sees the camera and he sees the people and, and then he gets a sense for the size of this thing. And John said, Tom, how much is this gonna cost? And I said, John, I have no idea. It's a morning of dreams. After a week of tryouts, all the players could do was wait and hope to hear their names called. Welcome to the inaugural global draft of the WUSA, the Women's United Soccer Association. Shannon Box was in a hotel conference room watching the draft on TV. And I was chatting. I don't even think I was paying that much attention. And all of a sudden, I heard my name. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I just got picked? The San Diego Spirit drafted Shannon in the third round. 19th pick overall. She was going to make a living playing soccer. I was shocked. I really was shocked. I remember walking out of that room and grabbing my phone and shaking and crying and like calling my best friends being like I just got picked I just made it Tempest the clock is running and then you know the end of the fourth round and then the fifth I'm like okay I can get drafted now anytime please Jackie could finally breathe in the sixth round when she was drafted by the Bay Area Cyber Ace oh my god this is so cool this is my job like how cool is this this is my job Jackie Little, Shannon Box, and over a hundred other women were now professional athletes. Can you put the whole experience in perspective, just the whole forming of the league and now that, that this is all reality? When college is over, it's kind of like soccer's finished too. I, I just get to play the game that I love and make a living doing it. This league is like the best thing that could have happened to women's soccer. Great, thanks a lot. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. WUSA had its players and the rest of the league was taking shape, too. In D.C., John Hendricks needed someone to manage his team, the Washington Freedom. John didn't have many connections in the sports world, but he was well-connected. So he hired Katie Button from First Lady Hillary Clinton's office. I mean, he knew I didn't have any sports management experience. I think he wanted someone who could manage the politics of soccer, which is a big part of, of navigating this. 
Katie Button had to get ready for the opening game, a showdown between the league's two biggest stars. Nia Hamm, Brandy Chastain, former teammates turned opponents in a new professional soccer league. Did you get bangs? Yeah, cute. There were signs all over the city for Brandy versus Mia. You know, it was like if Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan were playing against each other. The league spared no expense promoting the opening game. On April 14, 2001, almost 35,000 fans filed into RFK Stadium. All the founding national team players were there. They lined up at midfield to celebrate the opening of their league, their legacy. Everyone was crying. It was the culmination of all of this effort. And so it felt like we'd given them this day they deserved. And Julie Foudy brought her camcorder. This is it. We did it. We're here. I cannot believe it. I recall shooting Billie Jean at the game and saying, you helped us be part of this. This is happening, Billy. This is happening right now. We're living this. And, uh, and the crowd of 35,000 behind her. You just felt like, okay, we did it. That was one of those moments where you're like, pinch me, is this happening? The dream of a league came to life as games kicked off across the country. I remember the first time going up against Mia Hamm and she was running at me and, and I was trying to defend her and I'm like, okay, wait, focus. I'm, I'm actually defending Mia Ham at this point. Nice little one-two. Ham draws two defenders. I still can picture it. Like I was on the left side. She was dribbling down. We were almost at the 18 and I was like, don't screw up, Shannon. Don't screw up, Shannon. Box is there. She continues the battle. She beat me and I was like, oh. Every single game was so exciting because you're literally playing with and against these players that you looked up to all these years. Shannon Box, can she go up for the header? A goal! Shannon Box with a brilliant header! Shannon moved out of her mom's house and got her own apartment. It was actually the first time that I felt like a true adult. I was doing something that I loved to do. I had a passion for it, and I was getting paid to do it. It was a lot more money than CPK. (laughs) Jackie Little was also amazed that soccer could pay the bills. I I don't think it actually hit me until like my first like paycheck where it's like, oh my God, I'm getting paid to do this. And her first paycheck went to groceries. You know, I remember the first time someone came up to me in the grocery store. They're like, can I get your autograph? I like looked behind me like, me? There's this little kid and this little girl who just thought that like I was someone she wanted an autograph from. And having people look up to you and like want to be like you is just this, I don't think a lot of people get that opportunity to be that for somebody. The league had turned players like Jackie Little into role models, but its biggest assets were still the national team stars who could command a national audience. Like Brandy Chastain on The Late Show with David Letterman. This league has done everything right. The XFL, they did nothing right. (laughs) They they said that you and your team... It's a very smart approach to soccer, and and it's working pretty well, isn't it? 
Well, we knew that we would only have one opportunity to do it. And if we're going to do it, we better do it the right way. But behind closed doors, the WUSA investors were realizing that the league wasn't doing as well as they thought. In July 2001, the WUSA board met in Atlanta to look over the league's finances. John Hendricks traveled to be there in person. The tone of the room was a little um, tense. You know, that, that was a key meeting. Lynn Morgan was the general manager of the Atlanta Beat. And so I was invited to attend and I was curious to kind of learn what they were learning. They all knew this was going to be a meeting to talk about, you know, where they were financially, but no one expected what they heard. CEO Barbara Allen laid out the numbers. In total, the cable companies had invested $40 million. $40 million to launch the league and carry it through five years. And now, just halfway through the first season, all the money was gone. It was shock. (laughs) It was, what did you just say? I remember thinking, how did we do this? Julie Foudy was a player representative on the board. How do we allow this to happen, right? How do we not see this coming? There's a saying, with enough thrust, anything can fly. And we thought we had the thrust. Jim Kennedy and Cox Enterprises had put in $10 million to fund two teams. We thought with the success of the World Cup, the athletes we had, we had enough thrust that anything was going to fly. That confidence had propelled the league to throw millions into national advertising and expensive Manhattan office space. And that's not even counting the additional $24 million they spent on renovating stadiums. We wanted a professional level experience. And we were kind of gambling to to make this big on the U.S. stage. But the problem wasn't just overspending. Early on, it was clear to Katie Button that the investors had signed off on a flawed business plan. What was budgeted was a joke. I mean, that business plan was a joke. It didn't include rent. It didn't include any renovation that had to happen at stadiums. It didn't include marketing for the opening game, which worked, you know, but it cost money. The WUSA investors had built the league they wanted, not the one they had budgeted for. And that day in Atlanta, it was clear. The dream of building women's professional soccer was going to need a lot more money. The investors had a choice. Put in millions more or pull the plug. And all of us said, look, if there's two or three of the owners that don't want to do it, it's not going to go. And so it had to be a unanimous decision. I think they probably all felt a little sucker punched. Lynn Morgan knew the league might not live to see its first championship game if the investors pulled out. So that was a very pivotal moment for many of them. But there wasn't an investor in the room that was ready to walk away. Not at that point. Around the table, we all agreed, you know, that we would pony up for the second year. But it was clear we had to see progress. After season one, the board scrapped the business plan and started from scratch. They needed a new CEO to slash spending, and they picked Lynn Morgan. When my name came up, it was like, you're kidding, wow. It was a no-brainer. It was like, of course I'll do it. Lynn took over shortly after the first championship game. She didn't come from the soccer world, but during the first season, she had fallen in love with the league. I developed such a relationship 
with the staff and the players and everything else. I mean, you really become a very, very tight-knit family. And whatever it takes to keep this thing moving, we'll do that. Lynn's confidence reassured Julie Foudy and the rest of the board. And what was so great is Lynn walked in. Lynn has a swagger to her, right? She had this confidence of, all right, we're going to get this done. Lynn got expenses under control. She cut staff and moved the league's headquarters from Midtown Manhattan to Atlanta. In the second season, the soccer was still the best in the world. Back to Fatty, the header! Julie Fatty, goal! Never cut it, girl, it's in the net! It's in the net! That's it! The Carolina Courage win the Founders Cup! But after the second season, the board demanded even more budget cuts. And that's when those really tough decisions had to, had to be made. Lynn proposed a pay cut for the players in the top income bracket. The stakes were huge. The board wasn't going to fund a third season without these cuts. And it really was the last thing to cut because I wanted the players to feel like this could be a real profession. I knew we were now cutting into their expectations. You know, we were now playing with the dynamics of being a professional. News of the pay cut reached the players. I was pissed. It just I was just mad. Shannon Box had just been traded to the New York Power. She had packed up her life in San Diego and moved across the country. Then she heard her salary was on the chopping block. I just came all the way out here. I can't I can't do this. If I'm going to have to give up money, I'm not going to continue playing this year. I'm going to go back home and I'm going to apply to school and I'm going to be done. Carla Overbeck gathered the founding national team players. I was just like, listen, like, this is our league. And as sort of ownership in this league, that's our responsibility to take the pay cut. You know, you can't take money from sort of the bottom half of the roster, even the middle of the roster, because they don't make that much money. And it's the right thing to do. The national team players took a 25% pay cut for season three and agreed to give up their guaranteed salaries for seasons four and five. In return, the board agreed to fund a third season. Shannon Box had already applied to grad school when she heard the news. I remember them coming back to us and having a meeting saying, you know what, we chose as national team players to take the pay cut instead of you guys. It made me feel special because I felt like maybe they thought that I brought something to this league. Shannon worked even harder to get ready for the next season. The amount of confidence I had going into that third season, it was crazy. Jackie Little was also training for the third season with her new team, the Washington Freedom. After the pay cut, everyone could feel that the league was on shaky ground. They weren't in the boardroom, but the players knew one thing they could do was be there for the fans and sign all the autographs they could. Katie Button would come out with like 30 Sharpies. I still have Sharpies in like every jacket pocket. Yeah. (laughs) She would stand at the, the tunnel and be like, here are your Sharpies. And you'd sign autographs for 20 minutes after the game. We'd always tell them to try and hit a different section so they'd see different kids. When you won, you'd obviously stay out there all day long. But sometimes if you're kind of grumpy about the game or pissed off about something, going and signing the autographs actually got you out of your funk. Because then you'd see this little kid who's like, I love you. You're such a good player. And then you're like, "Okay, these kids think you're great whether you win or lose. You know, so it it felt like this is the place I wanted to be. And like, I want to keep growing this league. And the league was growing slowly. Lynn Morgan's leadership had stopped the bleeding. League-wide, revenue was up 27 percent. 
We were getting closer. We were definitely making some great strides. WUSA had lost $100 million over the course of three years. But that was pretty normal for a startup league. Major League Soccer had lost $250 million in its first five years. If you compared us apples to apples with some of the other leagues, we were doing pretty well. In a lot of ways, we looked really good. MLS had survived thanks to its wealthy private owners. But Katie Button was starting to get nervous that the WUSA investors didn't have that same commitment. We were on the right path. We made mistakes. We weren't perfect, but we were on very solid footing by the third year, except for our owners. The cable companies were publicly traded, so they didn't have the patience to slowly grow a league. They were investing their shareholders' money, and those shareholders needed to see a return on the investment. The investors were enormously enthusiastic and proud and happy with what they'd done. So I think they felt caught because they were personally enthusiastic, but it wasn't their money. John Hendricks fought to hold the investment group together. It was something bigger at stake than just another business. This was part of a, a movement. It was part of gender equality in America. It was part of, you know, making sure that every little girl had role models to look forward to. It was August 2003, and the WUSA board was going to meet in September right before the Women's World Cup. And I was getting just calls from Time Warner and Comcast of, look, you know, we love this, we'd like to go a fourth year, but John, we've gotta gotta see progress. John didn't have much time. WUSA desperately needed cash. So John had to find the money before the next board meeting. That stress followed him all the way to San Diego for the season three championship game. The WUSA on ESPN2. It's Founders Cup 3, the fans filing in. It was a beautiful blue sky day, but in the back of my mind is, you know, we're going to have to have this meeting. Is there going to be a fourth season? The Washington Freedom were up against the Atlanta beat. Jackie Little laced up her cleats and walked onto the field. This is what you work for. Like this moment right here. It's like... I felt like we were going to win this championship. It's like, let's do this. Abby Wambach with the header for the early Freedom League. The next team to score would win it all. Katie Button was on the edge of her seat as the game went into overtime. And then this play developed a little, fed it to our new German player. And then I just played a ball down the side. And Abby was making a run at the far post, and I was like, oh my God, like, come on. And I remember Mia and Abby just falling into a pile together as soon as the goal was scored. Abby's laying there, and everyone just like dog piles. I mean, the bench clears and. Yeah, she just laid there and everyone just (laughs) dogpiled the poor thing. The stadium went crazy. The Freedom passed around the Founders Cup trophy and then partied all night. Definitely drinks were flowing and we were partying and celebrating and flight home the next day was long. (laughs) So everyone's tired, but just so excited to get home. And came down the escalators like there was fans and signs and clapping and cheering. And it was... The future was bright, right? I mean, it's a start of 
a long, good future for the freedom. While Jackie was off winning the championship, Shannon Box got a call to try out for the U.S. women's national team. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe I finally got called in. And I was excited. I mean, I was like, in my head, I was like, I have a chance. I have an opportunity to play in this World Cup. Four years after cheering in the stands of the Rose Bowl, Shannon had a chance to make the U.S. team for the upcoming Women's World Cup. But first, she had to prove herself among the world's best. We are doing a shooting drill. And I remember hitting a ball and scoring and hearing behind me being like, man, she's good. And it was from like Mia, Julie, like it was those players behind me. And I was like, did they just say that? Did they just say was that? Were they talking about me? The same day the Freedom won the Founders Cup, Shannon got a call. April Heinrichs, the national team head coach, wanted to see her. And I sat down and all of a sudden she goes, so, you know, we've decided that we're going to put you on the World Cup team. And I just like looked at her and I was like, excuse me. I was like, what did you say? She like she just started laughing. She like we're you're you made the national you made the World Cup team, and I just remember just losing all my emotion. And she came and gave me a hug, and she's like, "You deserve this." As Shannon headed to the World Cup, Jackie headed into the off season. I just remember having the, the exit meetings and the physicals, and I was like, "All right, well, like enjoy your off season, you too." And and then we'll say, "Okay, we'll see you guys in January." In Washington. John Hendricks was preparing for the board meeting. So I knew this next meeting was going to be tough. He scrambled to find new investors. We were really scouring the planet for anybody. Every potential investor said no. The board meeting was days away, and John had one last play. He turned to U.S. soccer for a loan to buy the league some time. It was a tough blow for national team captain Julie Foudy. And I think it was so biting because... We wanted to prove we could do it on our own without U.S. soccer, right? That, crap, we've got to go back to them with our tail between our legs. And that's the last thing we wanted to do, right? We wanted to be like, see, <laughs> we can't do this without you. <laughs> now they needed U.S. soccer's help, but the Federation was skeptical. You know, from their side of it, they had invested so much on the men's side. I think they had a lot riding on their success. And I think they were always doubtful that the women could make it as professionals. U.S. soccer said no. They were at the point of realizing, well, is this fourth season going to be the last season? And that's the thing. If, if people can't see the fifth and sixth season, do you want to be part of just throwing good money after bad? John and the board met on September 15th, 2003. It was a dismal meeting. It was just the worst. It was in New York. And we were just at the end of the rope, trying to look at trends that would give us any, you know, any reason at all to, to try to keep it going for a fourth season. But there were no new investors, no loan from U.S. soccer, and most of all, the WUSA owners weren't willing to invest any more money. The board voted to shut down the league, just five days before the 2003 Women's World Cup. It was, it was a devastating kind of emotional experience to do that. John broke the news to the rest of the league. And I remember sitting in my office and John called and said, it's done. You know, we pulled the plug. We're doing it now so you can pay your staff for another couple months. But it's done. You need to go tell them. And then we gathered in the conference room down the hall and I had to tell everyone. And I think as um, unprepared as I had been, they were 
that times a thousand. Bad news today for a league that was once hailed as a vanguard for women in sports. The three-year-old women's professional soccer league is shutting down. Folded after it burned through a hundred million dollar investment in just three seasons. The announcement comes just five days before the start of the women's World Cup tournament. Someone called me and they're like, your league folded? And I was like, what? And they heard it on the news or something. And I was like, wait, seriously? Jackie Little was at home when she heard. It was a very big shock that I got a phone call from somebody who heard the league had folded on the news. And it wasn't from a coach or a GM or anything like that. It was definitely shocking. The national team was training in Virginia for the Women's World Cup. Julie Foudy called everyone together to deliver the news. The vision that comes to mind, actually, is we were in like a huddle, almost like we were praying. And... I was delivering the news of what had just transpired on this call and what, you know, what the reality was. The circle we made on the field, everybody had their heads down. Goalkeeper Brianna Scurry. And there was a, a somberness. And it was literally, it was just like silence. It was as if someone had died it really was. It was like a death of the family, really. Because, to be honest, that group of players had never failed at anything. And it was almost as if it was the first time that, as a collective, we hadn't succeeded. Even though, at the time, you you didn't think about it that way. We, for the first time, had failed. Just being, you know, devastated that it was done. And I'm not going to lie, a little bit felt lucky. This was Shannon's first time with the national team, but she was torn with survivor's guilt. Not lucky that it was ending, but lucky that I got seen before it ended, you know? But it was also something that I also realized it really made me who I was as a player. Team on three. One, two, three. Team! Stay, stay real quick. Julie Foudy had to prep the team as they went to meet the press. They're all over there, and they're going to be asking. So and it just, you know, became a, a thing you had to talk about the whole World Cup, too, right? You had to keep going back to that emotional tank of, you know, yeah, we failed at this. Right? <laughs> it doesn't have to be all smiles. Show them that you care that much about saving this, okay? Now we had to try to win another World Cup right away. <laughs> right now, let's go. You know, so that was really a really interesting pivot to have to make. And and we we unfortunately we couldn't make it. We tried, but we, we couldn't make a pivot. They lost to Germany in the semifinals. Meinert's gonna walk into the box and Meinert will end it! No, Meinert with a goal! It just was a very different feeling that World Cup compared to 99 in so many ways. The pain didn't hit Jackie Little right away. She stayed in D.C., took a job remodeling kitchens, and lived with her boyfriend, who played for the MLS team, D.C. United. Months later, her boyfriend went to the first day of preseason training. And he's like, okay, like, have a good day at work. And I was like, okay, you have fun at, you know, training. And then, like, on my way into work, I was like, Oh my God, this sucks. Like, 
he's going to preseason. And I'm just going into like my desk job. I just started crying and I'm like, oh my God, like this is me. Like this is me. I'm at a desk job. I'm no longer going to be a role model for kids. I'm not going to be doing the sport that I've done my whole life and loved. And this is like, this is the new existence. I went from being a professional athlete to selling cabinets. Katie Button found a new job too. She went to work for John Hendricks at the Discovery Channel. But the heartache of WUSA was hard to shake. You know, there was a sense of hopelessness, for sure, that can women's sports ever reach the level that we hoped they would. And I also think we all knew that we'd had an utterly unique moment after the World Cup in 99 to do this with the stature of the players, with the investors, with the attention, and that that moment was never going to present itself again. For Katie, this was all so unnecessary. By the end, WUSA was doing so well that even the MLS commissioner was impressed. After the league folded, Don Garber found out, you know, that we'd lost $16 million that year. He said, oh my God, my owners would give me the biggest raise if I only lost $16 million. We lost $75 million this year. And so we knew we weren't, it, it wasn't like we were operating in another reality. We were operating in the same reality as every other professional sports team. We just didn't have owners who lived in that reality. <laughs> Don Garber is still the commissioner. He recently said that he hopes MLS will turn a profit in 2026, 30 years after its founding. The MLS owners have been keeping it afloat all this time by investing billions in the league. Comparisons like these haunt Julie Foudy. It's something we thought about all the time. You know, why is there such an appetite for loss on the men's side and not on the women's side? And why is there such a willingness to help the men's side when they're struggling? WUSA only had three seasons but it left a lasting mark on American soccer and on the life of one player in particular, Shannon Box. I definitely was a no-name player and I made it to the biggest stage. And I 100% would never have been able to do that being 26 years old, out of college, nowhere to play if it wasn't for that league. Shannon went on to play 195 times for the U.S. women's national team. She scored 27 international goals and won three Olympic gold medals. Box steps in, shoots it in one motion. Shannon Boggs with a killer goal for the U.S. She hung up her boots in 2015 after winning the Women's World Cup. I'm very lucky that I got to end my career exactly when I wanted to. I got to choose when I finished. And I think that's a rare thing in the professional game. Jackie Little is still selling cabinets. She started her own remodeling business and married that DC United player, now her ex-husband. Looking back, she hates that her soccer career ended so abruptly. She wishes she could have made that choice herself instead of having it made for her. I would have played for as long as possible. And it's funny because my ex-husband, he's like, I don't know, maybe I think of retire. Why would you retire? Like play until they like don't let you back on the team. Right? I mean, what are you going to do afterwards? Like, get a desk job? I told him until, obviously, we got divorced. I was like, play until they, like, don't pick up your contract. Play until, like, they literally have to, like, peel you off the field. Play until you can't go anymore. 
Thanks for listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. ESPN Films senior producer Aaron Leiden and I are series editors. This story was reported and produced by Andrew Helms and Meredith Hodenot. It was edited by Andrea B. Scott with archival research by Brendan Reese. Mixing and sound design for this episode by Meredith Hodenot. Our very own Andrew Mambo was project manager and helped edit this episode. And I'll point out, this story took place years ago, but the fight and the tensions between the women's national team and U.S. soccer do continue. You may be seeing some of this going on right now in the news with clashes over equal pay. There's some possible lawsuits. It's very much an evolving story. So, as such, later this summer, during the World Cup, we're going to be posting a bonus episode. I'll talk with Andrew Helms and Meredith about the World Cup, play some audio that didn't make it into the episode, and we'll talk about the latest in U.S. soccer. So keep your eye out for that. And if you have any questions in the meantime for us or them, send us an email, 30for30podcasts at ESPN.com. The 30 for 30 podcast team also includes producers Mitra Caboli, Ryan Mantel, and Keith Romer. Additional archive research by Vin DeAnton. Sam Dowd was the production assistant on Backpass. We had additional production support from Rachel Bain, Bradley Campbell, Amber Espinosa, Emily Foreman, Rich Halton, Kelly Jones, Barrick Wright, and special thanks to Audio In Recording in Salt Lake City. Natalie Mead provided fact-checking. For ESPN Films, our executive producers are Connor Shell, Rob King, and Libby Geist. Our development team is Adam Newhouse and Jenna Anthony. The 30 for 30 team also includes Deirdre Fenton, Jennifer Thorpe, Kath Sankey, Louise Argianis, Maria Delgado, Tom Picard, Paul Williard, Eve Wolf, and Alex Bowen. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, Ryan Graner, Devin McGowan, and Elizabeth Fearman. Special thanks to Lee Burke, Emily Burt, Dan Cortemanch, Joe Cummings, Anson Dorrance, Lauren Gregg, John Langle, and Casey Sage. Our theme music was composed by Rishikesh Hirway. Be sure to subscribe to 30 for 30 podcasts in the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you haven't gone back and listened to our first four seasons, go ahead and do that before season five arrives in your phone later this summer. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.